Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. ...and offices that had previously been alienated from the Crown by passing an act of resumption in Parliament in 1473. This was a political tool that he'd used before in 1461, 1463 and 1467, and one which had the double benefit of fortifying royal finances while allowing the scope for cheap patronage by granting exemptions. Edward approached the problem of redistributing land, titles, offices, and authority like a political jigsaw puzzle, fitting together sensitive areas of the country under the leadership of men whom he thought he could trust, most of whom came from the family circle. Lands in Devon, Cornwall, and the southwest fell to the king's stepson, Thomas Gray, who became Marquess of Dorset by 1475. The late Lord Herbert's son and namesake, William Herbert, became Earl of Pembroke, and was initially trusted to oversee Wales before the role was taken over by a council under the authority of the young Edward, who was awarded the traditional heir's titles of Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester. The Prince's Council operated from the old Yorkist seat of Ludlow on the borders, and its power in Wales was operated by the Queen and her brother Earl Rivers. Warwick's huge estates, which, had he died naturally, would have gone to his brother Montague and his two daughters, were largely split between the King's brothers. In the Midlands, the unreliable Clarence was entrusted with land and a limited degree of autonomy and power, but his authority was eventually overtaken by that of Edward's great friend, servant, military captain and companion, William Lord Hastings. Edward kept a measure of direct control over the Midlands, later marrying his second son, Richard, Duke of York, to the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, who had interest in the region. A patchwork quilt of delegated royal authority was being stitched together, connecting the king's children, brothers, and extended family in a way that hadn't been attempted since the heyday of Edward III. At the centre of it all, the king remained sharp, interested, and focused on the business of government. He was capable, in an argument, of demonstrating intimate knowledge of politics to a remarkably local level. He used men connected to his household to serve as local justices of the peace and sheriffs, to sit on the itinerant judicial commissions of Oya and Termina, and to do the work of the royal council in the regions. The fingers of direct royal power spread deeper than at any time in living memory into the shires of England. One chronicler observed that the dominance of royal officials controlling the governance of castles, forests, manors and parks was such that no person, however shrewd he might be, could commit any offence without being immediately charged with the same to his face.
Gradually, the machinery necessary for keeping law and order in the realm was being rebuilt. Edward's reconstruction of England and of English royal power relied heavily on the use of tough and trusted lieutenants, and few were more trusted after 1471 than his youngest brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. He was awarded the Neville Estates in Northern England, a perpetually troubled and dangerous area of the country, bordering the unpredictable enemy kingdom of Scotland. It required a leader of unimpeachable loyalty, military skill, courage and cunning, characteristics he had displayed over the course of the recent crises. To bolster his position, in 1472 Gloucester was married to Warwick's youngest daughter, Anne Neville. His brother Clarence had, of course, married Anne's elder sister Isabel during his rebellion in 1469. Gloucester was also awarded huge tracts of land from the Duchy of Lancaster, the honour of Richmond, which had once belonged to Henry Tudor's father Edmund, and effective seniority over Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland. He held land in Wales and East Anglia, as well as serving as a constable and admiral of England. Still only twenty-two years old in 1472, Richard of Gloucester was beginning to suffer noticeably from scoliosis, a curvature of the spine which caused him to walk with his right shoulder raised and his back hunched, and may have given him pain and shortness of breath. In later years, a German visitor to England, Nicholas von Popolau, would remark that although Richard was tall, he stood five foot eight, not as tall as his brother Edward, but large by the standard of the day, he was lean with delicate arms and legs. Whatever Richard's physical shortcomings, they didn't diminish his standing either in his brother's eyes or anyone else's. During the 1470s, he was roundly acclaimed as the most senior military man in England under the king, an effective prince in the north, and Edward IV's foremost and most trusted lieutenant. He had, said von Popolau, a great heart. The same could be said of George, Duke of Clarence. He was chief among those who benefited from Edward IV's preference for conciliation and mercy, and had been treated with extraordinary generosity, considering his pivotal role in the crisis that had forced his brother from the throne in the first place. Clarence had extensive territories in the Midlands, and was, with Gloucester, one of the first to profit from the death of the Earl of Warwick. But the partition of the Warwick estates caused a good amount of friction between Clarence and Gloucester from 1472 until 1474, friction that translated on the ground into disorder throughout the Midlands and a growing headache for the king. Edward had indulged his feckless younger brother for many years, tolerating the most appalling and disloyal behaviour, but eventually he came to realise that Clarence was never likely to redeem himself and become the dependable and astute kinsman on whom so much of his royal policy was founded. The Duke's final fall from grace would be spectacular, even by the standards of this ruthless, pitiless age. On Friday, January the 16th, 1478, 
the great men of England assembled in the painted chamber of the Palace of Westminster for the opening of Parliament. The large room was decorated in every available space with faded murals of biblical and historical scenes, arranged in six large horizontal strips, rising to the very top of the thirty-foot walls. The stories depicted included those of King David, the Maccabees, and the destruction of the temple. Elsewhere were huge seven-foot figures representing the virtues, standing victorious over sins, angels bearing crowns swooping above the windows, and a sublime rendering of St. Edward the Confessor on his coronation day. Amid all this splendor, sitting on his royal throne, was King Edward IV. Before him were the representatives of his subjects, and ready to address them was the Chancellor of England, Thomas Rotherham, Bishop of Lincoln. The bishop took as his theme two texts, the first from the Old Testament and the second from the New. The first was the famous Psalm 23, Dominus regit me et nihil mihi deerit. Lord rules me, I shall want for nothing. The Lord, explained Rotherham, was the protector of his people. He was the essence of their salvation, and it was in turn their absolute duty to obey their master. This brought the bishop onto his second text, the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, in which he warned his correspondents that the king doesn't carry the sword without cause. This ominous passage explains that those who resist righteous power will be damned, and that, in bearing the sword, a godly king is appointed as an avenger to execute wrath on evildoers. The bishop concluded his remarks by returning pointedly to the psalm, and reminding his audience that if the Lord will rule them, they will lack nothing, but he will put them to graze in pasture. It was obvious to everyone assembled in the painted chamber on that winter morning precisely what Thomas Rotherham had in mind. The Duke of Clarence was in the Tower of London, and had been there for more than six months. Around June the 10th, he had been summoned to an audience with the King, the Mayor, and the Aldermen of London. Edward had upbraided him in person before commanding that he be thrown in jail. It was no secret that the king and his wayward middle brother looked on each other with no very fraternal eyes. Nevertheless, there was something sensational about a king summarily imprisoning his closest adult relative and preparing to put him on trial before the lords in Parliament. Clarence's behaviour had been problematic for some time. His feud with Gloucester over the division of the Warwick and Neville estates between 1472 and 1474, had almost resulted in armed confrontation, and had certainly not helped Edward to stabilise a realm following his return to the throne. The deal that Edward imposed in 1474 to bring this quarrel to an end had settled on both men handsome portions of the lands they craved, but it had left Clarence highly dissatisfied. He did more and more to estrange himself from the king's presence, sulking in silence through council meetings 
and refusing to eat or drink in the king's company. His rage was that of a middle child, overtaken by a prodigious younger brother. Gloucester was emerging as a king's hand in the north and his most trusted magnate, whereas Clarence was humiliated. Edward had taken away his favourite manor and ducal seat at Tutbury in Staffordshire, and also refused to allow him to exercise his military duties as lieutenant of Ireland. Personal matters had also served to inflame the brotherly resentment. When Gloucester married Anne Neville in 1472, she immediately conceived and bore him a son, Edward of Midlam. Clarence's marital experience was markedly less happy. In December 1476, Clarence's wife Isabel died at the age of twenty-five. She left two children, Margaret and Edward, who would survive to adulthood, but her death left a terrible mark on her husband. It's probable that Isabel died from the after-effects of childbirth, but this wasn't the way it seemed to Clarence. Perhaps because he was driven mad by the grief of losing his wife, perhaps simply because he was constitutionally vindictive, short-sighted and unwise, he determined to take revenge. At two o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, April the 12th, 1477, a mob of eighty riotous and misgoverned persons loyal to the Duke descended on the manor of Cayford in Somerset, and seized a woman by the name of Anchorette Twino, who had once been a personal servant of Duchess Isabel. Effectively abducted, Twino was whisked across the country at great speed, from Cayford to Bath, from Bath to Cirencester, and from Cirencester to Warwick, where she arrived as dark was falling on Monday, April the 14th, and was locked in a cell. At six o'clock the following morning, the wretched woman was dragged to the Guildhall in Warwick, where Clarence sat in personal judgment as she was accused of having killed Isabel by giving her a venomous drink of ale mixed with poison. It was plainly a ludicrous charge, not least because the crime had supposedly taken place on October the 10th, 1476, more than two months before the Duchess had actually died but Clarence ensured that within three hours of reaching the Guildhall, Anchorette Twino had been presented to the court, indicted for murder, tried, found guilty, dragged through the streets of Warwick, and hanged. There was no semblance of justice. Indeed, several of the jurors who were browbeaten into delivering a guilty verdict apparently approached Twino with great remorse in their conscience knowing they had given an untrue verdict, and piteously asked forgiveness before the unlucky lady was put to her death. This would have been a serious indiscretion in its own right. To subvert the judicial process and kill innocent people was no way for a duke of the royal blood to behave. But it would most likely have been forgiven were it not for Clarence's subsequent intervention in another far more serious criminal case. This second case involved three men, a fellow and chaplain of Merton College, Oxford, by the names of Master John Stacy and Thomas Blake, and a brutish, violent Midlands landowner called Thomas Burdett, 
who were arrested and charged with predicting the king's death by sorcery. During the mid-15th century, the phenomena of witchcraft, alchemy, astrology, and sorcery were taken very seriously. They had, after all, been instrumental thirty years previously in bringing down Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, through his wife, Eleanor Cobham. The men were charged before a court composed of some of England's most senior noblemen, with having attempted to predict the death dates of Edward IV and his eldest son, so that the king, by knowledge of the same, would be saddened, so that his life would be thereby shortened. All three were found guilty. On May the 19th, 1477, Burdett and Stacy were drawn on a hurdle to Tyburn and hanged, pleading their innocence as they stood on the scaffold. Blake was pardoned, and that would have been the end of it if Clarence hadn't decided to intervene, for, intriguingly, Burdett had been one of his servants. Two days after the hangings, Clarence marched into a council meeting, read out declarations of innocence on behalf of the dead men, and promptly marched out again. Even if Burdett's association with Clarence hadn't cast suspicion on the Duke, his headstrong defence of a convicted traitor most certainly did. These, then, were the events that had convinced Edward IV in the summer of 1477 that Clarence was too dangerous to be left alone. The first sign of royal displeasure came in the king's explicit refusal to allow Clarence to marry again. Edward IV threw all possible impediments in the way of potential matches with either Mary of Burgundy, the only heir of Charles the Bold, following the Burgundian duke's death in 1477, or Margaret Stuart, sister of James III of Scotland. Ill feeling between Edward and Clarence began to burn from this point, stoked, according to one chronicler, by flatterers running to and fro from the one side to the other and carrying backwards and forwards the words which had fallen from the two brothers, even if they had happened to be spoken in the most secret closet. When the January 1478 Parliament assembled before the King in the Painted Chamber, it was clear to everyone in it that the Duke's time was up. The autumn preceding Parliament's meeting had been passed by those around the King, principally his Woodville relatives, building a case against Clarence, that extended far beyond the affronts to justice, judicial process, and political common sense committed in the aftermath of his wife's death. All of the Duke's past misdemeanours had been bundled together in a package of damnable crimes that could be deployed to destroy him. Parliament, when it was called, had been packed with retainers, servants, and associates of the King and Queen. Over the next months, as proceedings took place in Westminster Abbey, it witnessed an extraordinary ruthless piece of political drama in which Edward IV, unsupported by any other legal counsel, delivered a damning personal case against his brother. Not a single person uttered a word against the Duke, except the King, wrote one chronicler, who also noted that Clarence was refused the right of attorney in his defence. Not one individual made answer to the King except the Duke. Witnesses were called, but they struck observers as royal stooges. 
It was plain from the beginning that Clarence was doomed. Outside Westminster, the king had scheduled a series of lavish parties and pageants to celebrate the marriage of his four-year-old second son, Richard, Duke of York, to the six-year-old Anne Mowbray, sole heiress to the Duke of Norfolk. The large royal family, dominated by Woodvilles and their noble spouses, feasted and made merry, while inside a tense parliament chamber, Clarence was systematically destroyed by his own brother. Eventually and inevitably, early in February 1478, proceedings were wound up, and Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, the King's brother-in-law through his marriage to Catherine Woodville, stood in Parliament and delivered a verdict. Clarence was convicted of treason, having been adjudged guilty on a bewildering array of charges which were enumerated in a bill of attainder later passed against him. He was held to have engaged in a conspiracy against the king, the queen, their son and heir, and a great part of the nobility of the land. Ignoring the fact that Edward had always loved and generously rewarded him, he had grievously offended the king in the past, procuring his exile from the realm and labouring Parliament to exclude him and his heirs from the crown, all of which the king forgave, but the duke continued to conspire against him, intending his destruction by both internal and external forces. Then came the list of specific crimes. The duke sought to turn Edward's subjects against him by saying that Thomas Burdett was falsely put to death and that the king resorted to necromancy. He also said that the king was a bastard, not fit to reign, and made men take oaths of allegiance to him without accepting their loyalty to the king. He accused the king of taking his livelihood from him and intending his destruction. He secured an exemplification under the great seal of an agreement made between him and Queen Margaret, promising him the crown if Henry VI's line failed. He planned to send his son and heir abroad to win support, bringing a false child to Warwick Castle in his place. He planned to raise war against the king within England and made men promise to be ready at an hour's notice. The duke has thus shown himself incorrigible, and to pardon him would threaten the common weal, which the king is bound to maintain. The Bill of Attainder noted that the duke was convicted of high treason. He was signed by Edward's own hand. The king dithered for a few days about whether to carry out the sentence that his brother's supposed crimes demanded, but eventually the parliamentary commons complained about the delay, and on February the 18th, George, Duke of Clarence, was put to death in the Tower of London. The exact method of death has never been established, but a long tradition holds that he was plunged headfirst into a barrel of Malmsey wine and drowned. His bones were later buried at Tewkesbury Abbey, it was an unfortunate end to a man who in life had been a feckless nuisance and an ingrate. He died the victim of his own rashness. Edward rued his brother's death and made many expensive provisions to tie up his finances and estate, but his reign was the more secure for Clarence's removal. 
By 1479, almost every threat to the rule of the House of York, both external and internal, had been erased. There was only one man left who posed even the vaguest challenge to the dynastic security of the English crown. Far away across the sea, Henry Tudor still survived, a dim beacon for the Lancastrian cause. But in 1478, he could hardly have seemed less dangerous to Edward IV, the king who had amply demonstrated what St. Paul had once told the Romans, they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Chapter 17 The Only Imp Now Left Jasper and Henry Tudor had washed up on the shores of western Brittany in the little fishing port of Le Conquet in the middle of September 1471. Their crossing was rough and troubled by storms, but the wind was kind in blowing their bark ashore in the territory of Duke Francis II of Brittany. Francis was a clever politician and a courteous host. When Jasper and Henry found their way to his court, he treated them very handsomely for prisoners, which is what they now were. The Tudors would remain at the Duke's mercy for more than a decade. As Edward rebuilt England, across the sea, Jasper and Henry lived the lives of honourable fugitives. Francis's ducal seat was the Chateau de l'Hermine at Vaux, a grand, well-fortified palace equipped with fine stables, tennis courts, and its own mint. Having submitted to Francis's authority, the Tudors were treated with honour, courtesy, and favour, and entertained as though... They had been the Duke's brothers. The Duke promised that they should be free to pass as their pleasure to and fro without danger. But manifestly that wasn't the case. In October 1472, the Tudors were moved from Vaux into the possession of Jean de Quelenec, the Admiral of Brittany, who kept them at his Chateau de Sucigno, a small but stunning moated hideaway on a peninsula between the ocean and the bay of Morbihan. Later, when it was feared that Susignon was too vulnerable to a kidnapping raid from the sea, they were moved to Nantes. Here the men would become political pawns in the diplomatic intrigues that took place between Duke Francis, Louis XI of France, and Edward IV. Although Edward was busy in the 1470s with the pacification both of his kingdom and of his brother, he never wholly forgot that the only remaining Lancastrian of any note was tantalizingly beyond his reach. Henry was, in the words of the Italian historian Polydor Virgil, the only imp now left of Henry VI's blood, and the English king determined on numerous occasions to solicit his return from Brittany with gift, promise, and prayer. He had a rival for Henry's custody in Louis of France. The French king suspected, quite rightly, that possession of the Tudors would be a very useful stick with which to prod his English rival. Louis attempted to extract Jasper and Henry from Brittany in 1474, sending an ambassador, Guillaume Compain, to argue that since Jasper was a pensioner of France and cousin of Louis himself, 
he and his nephew ought to be released into French custody. Francis, seeing in turn that possession of the Tudors was a stick with which to prod France, refused, but he agreed to move Jasper and Henry from Nantes. Early in 1474, Jasper was taken to the Chateau de Josselin, twenty-five miles from Vannes, while Henry was placed in the newly constructed maximum security Chateau de la Goette, under the watch of the Marshal of Brittany, Jean de Rieux. He was imprisoned once again in luxury on the sixth floor of seven within the massive octagonal Tour d'Alvene. Not for the first time in his life, the seventeen-year-old Henry Tudor was comfortable, but he wasn't going anywhere. In June 1475, Edward IV invaded France with a large army, funded by English taxation on a scale that hadn't been seen since the time of Henry V. He declared himself, in time-honoured fashion, to be the King of France and Duke of Normandy and Gascony, evoking the claims of all his Plantagenet predecessors since Henry II and Richard the Lionheart. Using a fleet of five hundred borrowed Dutch boats, he landed in Calais with as many as fifteen hundred men-at-arms, fifteen thousand archers, and besides a great number of foot-soldiers. Even if we allow for exaggerations in the estimates, the English army was still thought by a close associate of the French king to be the most numerous, the best disciplined, the best mounted, and the best armed that any king of that nation invaded France withal. Nevertheless, Edward found little support from either Burgundy or Brittany for his endeavour. After some minor and fruitless skirmishing, the expedition was over by August the 29th, when Louis XI and Edward met on the bridge over the river Somme in the town of Piquigny to thrash out the terms of a deal. Edward wrung from Louis a seven-year truce and a lavish pension. In comparison to the great campaigns of the Hundred Years' War, which Edward was hoping to emulate, the 1475 invasion was a largely insignificant jaunt about the countryside, notable for little more than the fact that Edward had managed, not for the first time in his reign, to collect a huge amount of tanks without fighting the campaigns it was intended to fund. But the Treaty of Piquigny also made the Tudors' position a great deal more precarious, for under its terms Louis promised not to attack Brittany. Expecting that Duke Francis might be rather grateful, Edward renewed his attempts to wheedle Henry Tudor away from Brittany and bring him to justice in England, on the understanding that he wouldn't be ill-treated. This time he was very nearly successful. After a year, weary of being nagged, Francis agreed to repatriate his charge. In November 1476, English ships bobbed in the waters off the Breton coast ready to receive the prodigal Tudor. But when he was brought to the port of Saint-Malo, Henry, knowing that he was carried to his death through agony of mind, fell by the way into a fever. Whether feigned, real, or psychosomatic, this illness was enough to save him. He took sanctuary in one of Saint-Malo's churches in order to recover his health, and during the delay, Duke Francis had a change of heart. He sent messengers, summoning Henry back to the Chateau de l'Hermine, 
Jasper joined him there from Josselin. The Tudors had narrowly escaped Edward's attempts to recapture them. The king realized he would have to choose a different tactic if he wished to wipe out for good the last remaining threat to his throne. Back in England, Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort, had trodden a more conciliatory course through the politics of the Yorkist Restoration. Small of stature, shrewd and tough, Margaret was a very impressive woman. She was highly literate, a canny businesswoman, and, above all, always mindful of her duty to protect what she could of her son's inheritance and future. Despite the trauma she had suffered while giving birth to Henry in Pembroke Castle during the plague-swept winter of 1457, when she was only thirteen years old, she had gone on to marry twice since the death of her first husband, Edmund Tudor. In 1461, she married Henry Stafford, the second son of Humphrey Stafford, late Duke of Buckingham. This had meant separation from her son when he was only four years old, although she had visited the boy at Raglan Castle during his youth. Henry VI's readeption had permitted a brief reunion, and Margaret had taken the young Henry Tudor on a barge ride up the Thames to visit the king at Westminster. Polydore Virgil recorded that the simple-minded old monarch had looked at the child and said, This truly, this is he unto whom both we and our adversaries must yield and give over the dominion. A cryptic statement to which Margaret would later assign great meaning. When Edward IV swept back into power, circumstance once again separated mother from son. Margaret's first cousin, Edmund, Duke of Somerset, had been dragged out of sanctuary and beheaded following the Battle of Tewkesbury, while her cousin John, Marquis of Dorset, was killed during the fighting. Jasper and Henry had fled to the continent. Margaret had last seen Henry on Wednesday, November the 11th, 1470. But in all that time, she had never stopped chasing means by which she could secure her own inheritance— consisting of a considerable body of land and income in the south of England and the Midlands, and pass on what she could to her exiled only child. Margaret's husband, Stafford, died on October the 4th, 1471, having endured for six months bouts of illness and infirmity connected to wounds he had received fighting at the Battle of Barnet. It was a mark of Margaret's instinct for survival— that she ignored the social protocol, suggesting widows ought to observe a year's mourning before remarriage. There's every sign that she had enjoyed an affectionate partnership with Stafford, but before he was even in the ground, she had begun negotiations for a union with another baron of the realm, Thomas, second Lord Stanley, a northern magnate with extensive lands and power in the northwest, and, more important, extremely good connections to the Yorkist court. When Edward IV formalized the lavish new arrangement of the royal household, he appointed Stanley a steward, the most prestigious post available, with regular access to the king and scope for all sorts of political intrigue. Stanley's position in the household meant that he developed a close working relationship with the Woodvilles. Over the course of the 1470s, 
Lord Stanley and Lady Margaret were drawn close into the Yorkist family circle. At a splendid ceremony held in 1476 to rebury old Richard, Duke of York, in the family mausoleum in Fotheringay, Margaret attended Queen Elizabeth and her daughters. In 1480, when Bridget, the last of Edward IV and Elizabeth's children, was born at Eltham, Margaret was permitted to carry the baby to the font during the christening. She walked at the head of a procession of one hundred knights and squires, all carrying torches, accompanied by the king's eldest stepson, Thomas Gray, Marquis of Dorset. Little by little, she was making her way into royal favour. Margaret Beaufort's slow but steady integration into the royal circle worked precisely as intended. After 1476, when the king had failed to drag Henry Tudor out of Brittany by diplomacy, he began to consider other means of neutralising what small threat the young man could pose. He turned to Stanley and Margaret to establish the grounds on which Henry could be brought home and knitted into the acceptable ranks of English society. The first impediment to this was removed with the death of George, Duke of Clarence, in the Tower of London. Clarence had held the lands of the earldom of Richmond, Edmund Tudor's old title, and with this available, there was now an enticing bait to dangle in front of Henry, who could now be offered a return to England as a nobleman of the first rank. Prompted by the king, Margaret and Stanley began to work on the process by which that might be achieved. At some unknown point, a royal pardon for Henry was drafted on the back of the letter that had originally created Edmund as Earl of Richmond in November 1452. At around the same time, there were discussions between Margaret and the King about the fact that their children were related within the degrees of kinship that prohibited marriage without papal consent. These were terms of discussion that would theoretically precede a marriage between Henry Tudor and one of the royal princesses. Finally, on June the 3rd, 1482, a document was drawn up at Westminster in which Edward IV made an agreement with Stanley and Margaret concerning the disposal of estates belonging to Margaret's mother. From these estates, Margaret was permitted to carve out a rich inheritance for Henry. The agreement granted that the young man would be allowed to inherit on condition that he return to England to be in the grace and favour of the King's Highness. Edward's seal was affixed to the document. The stage was set for Henry to come home, albeit to a home that by 1482 the 25-year-old renegade had only known for a few months of his life. Then, disaster struck. On April the 10th, 1483, Edward IV died in his bed at Westminster Palace. Although he was neither worn out with old age nor yet seized with any known kind of malady, he had become unwell following a fishing trip taken during the days leading up to Easter. A short and severe illness carried him from good health to death in less than a fortnight. He was still three weeks short of his forty-first birthday. In his youth, a tall and a strikingly handsome man, by the time he reached early middle age, he had become barrel-chested, fat and loose, facts that were noted by men inside and outside the kingdom.
Years of increasingly debauched living had finally caught up with him. Feasting and fornication were the prerogatives of kings, but even by royal standards, Edward had thrown himself wholeheartedly into excess. He had numerous mistresses. The most famous was Elizabeth Shaw, a fast-tongued mercer's daughter from London, whom the king shared with Lord Hastings, and at least two illegitimate children by different mothers. There was a boy called Arthur Plantagenet, born to an obscure lady of the court around 1472, and much later created Lord Lyle, a daughter Grace, and probably many more. Edward loved to indulge himself in ease and pleasures, wrote the historian and diplomat Philippe de Comines, who had seen the king in action firsthand during the peace negotiations of 1475. Polydore Virgil, who knew and interviewed many of Edward's associates, observed that the king had been given to bodily lust, whereunto he was of his own disposition inclined. An even more vivid description was penned by the visiting Italian historian Dominique Mancini, who wrote of Edward that in food and drink he was immoderate. It was his habit to take an emetic for the delight of gorging his stomach once more. After his recovery of the crown, he had grown fat in the loins, whereas previously he had been not only tall but rather lean and very active. Comine thought that the king had died of an apoplexy, which could mean anything from a stroke to a heart attack. It was said elsewhere in Europe that the cause of death had been eating too many fruits and vegetables on Good Friday, although this was probably more a reflection of Edward's famous girth than of medical science. We can speculate today that in view of his lifestyle, Edward may have been suffering chronic kidney disease a fatal condition that only manifests itself in the acute final stages. Or perhaps he succumbed to a virus like influenza, which made its first significant appearances in England in the 1480s. We will never know. All his fatness and loose living notwithstanding, Edward IV had been the most capable politician and talented soldier to wear the English crown since Henry V. He had stamped out the vicious civil wars caused by the prolonged ineptitude of Henry VI. The bull-headed politicking of Edward's own father, Richard, Duke of York, and the faithless scheming of Richard, Earl of Warwick, and George, Duke of Clarence. He did so not merely by winning great victories on the battlefield, but thanks to an acute understanding of what lay at the root of good kingship. This was an even more remarkable achievement when we consider that never in his life did he see another man govern England competently. His instinctive bonhomie had put him at ease in the company of everyone, from the lowliest servants to the magnates who made up his natural circle of friends, advisers and counsellors. Although both halves of his reign had experienced turmoil, his second reign had been a marked improvement on the first. Dissenters had either been co-opted or ruthlessly wiped out. A great, if underemployed, army had been mustered for deployment in France, reminiscent of the hordes raised by his ancestor Edward III in the 1340s and 1350s, and the magnificence of the English court had been raised to a similarly exalted level. After all intestine division appeased, 
he left a most wealthy realm abounding in all things, which by reason of civil wars he had received almost utterly void, as well of able men as money, wrote Virgil. And although the coffers weren't quite brimming over, on his death he left England a great deal more stable than he'd found her. If England was restored by Edward IV, it was also dealt a massive wrench by his death. For if the travails of the last six decades had taught Englishmen anything, then it was that the prosperity of the kingdom was dependent heavily on the good sense of the man who wore the crown. In 1483, however, there was no man waiting, and there were several difficult problems looming. A war had been started with Scotland in 1482, which required careful royal attention and considerable military expenditure, while in the same year relations across the sea had become much more delicate. The Treaty of Arras had been signed between Louis XI of France and a new ruler of Burgundy, Archduke Maximilian I of Habsburg, hobbling the traditional English strategy of playing these two great powers against each other. These were potentially perilous times, yet Edward's son and heir was twelve and a half years old, and his brother and heir apparent, Richard, Duke of York, wasn't quite ten. Once again, agonizingly, England's fate depended on a child, or, more accurately, on the good service and goodwill of the adults who surrounded him. When Edward IV died, his eldest son was at Ludlow, the sumptuous castle in Shropshire, that served as a seat of the council over which he presided as Prince of Wales. The Prince's council was convened under his authority, but in practice all its business was transacted by the young man's governor, tutor and uncle, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. For more than ten years Rivers had served as guide and mentor to the Prince of Wales, keeping him busy in a life that his father had long ago abandoned. He spent long hours with horses, dogs, and other youthful exercises to invigorate his body. The Queen's forty-three-year-old brother was a paragon of chivalry and an enthusiastic patron and practitioner of the learned piety of the Renaissance. Reputed to be the finest knight in England, it was Rivers who had been afforded the honour of jousting the Bastard of Burgundy in the famous tournament of 1467. Since then, he has spent much of his life in the role of a knight-errant, riding around Europe making war on the infidel while wearing a hair shirt beneath his heavy armour. Rivers had fought the Saracens in Portugal. He had been on pilgrimages to Rome and Santiago de Compostela, he was on good terms with Pope Sixtus IV, and he was an enthusiastic man of letters. He collaborated with the pioneering merchant William Caxton, who in 1475 to 1476 had brought a printing press to England for the first time. Rivers made use of Caxton's new technology to publish English translations of the dicts and sayings of the philosophers and the proverbs of Christine de Pisan as well as numerous of his own works of moralizing verse. Caxton wrote approvingly of Rivers that he conceiveth well the mutability and the unstableness of this present life, and that he desireth with a great zeal and spiritual love that we shall abhor 
and utterly forsake the abominable and damnable sins which commonly be used nowadays, such as pride, perjury, terrible swearing, theft, murder, and many other. He was, in short, the model tutor for a young king growing up in a time of war and burgeoning knowledge, and his presence at the boy's elbow had evidently been reassuring to the old king, both in life and upon his deathbed. Indeed, Edward had given explicit instructions concerning the education of the prince, demanding that no man sit at his board, that is, table, but by the discretion of Earl Rivers. Edward IV's death, however, made Rivers's dominant position into a far more complicated matter. The Earl's physical and emotional proximity to the young king now made him, potentially, the most powerful man in the land. But Edward V was at a very sensitive age. Twelve years old was a point at which a king might begin to show a will of his own and to give direction to the government flowing from his crown. Yet it was also a childish age at which he remained highly susceptible to direction, or indeed misdirection, by those who were closest to him. Rivers understood this well. For besides being a great knight, he was an astute politician. Just six weeks before the king's death, Rivers had requested from his solicitor in London copies of the letters by which he was appointed as the head of the prince's household, letters that gave him explicit command of the royal person and discretion in moving him from place to place. It would therefore have been fresh and clear in Rivers's mind just how much political value was attached to his possession of Edward V in April 1483. It was certainly fresh and clear in the minds of those outside the Woodville Circle. Edward IV's will is now lost, but on his deathbed it seems that he tried to establish a series of compromises by which kingship could have been operated during his son's early reign. He had made a concerted personal attempt to reconcile those around him who were engaged in long-standing quarrels, bringing Lord Hastings to his bedside and commanding him to make peace with Thomas Grey, Marquis of Dorset, the Queen's eldest son. Although Dorset was married to Hastings' stepdaughter, the two maintained a deadly feud. They were territorial rivals in the Midlands, and according to the writer Mancini, rivals for the embraces of mistresses whom they had abducted or attempted to entice from one another. Next, to balance the fact that his son would remain comfortably in the care of Rivers and the Woodvilles, the dying king seems to have nominated his faithful brother Richard, Duke of Gloucester, next in line to the throne after the young Duke of York, and therefore naturally the greatest man in the realm, to take command of the government, effectively in the position of protector. If this was so, then it was almost exactly the same arrangement that Henry V had attempted to make as he lied dying at Vincennes some sixty years previously, when he had nominated Thomas Beaufort, the Duke of Exeter, to take responsibility of the infant Henry VI's person, and another Duke of Gloucester, Humphrey, to have control of royal government. Splitting command of the new king's household from command of government was a logical means by which to divide power. Unfortunately, 
he took absolutely no account of the realities of politics. As soon as Edward's death was known, those of his councillors who were in London gathered to debate the best form for the new government to take. Two solutions were suggested. The first was the establishment of a protectorate, which, according to Mancini, was what the old king had directed in his will. The only plausible candidate for the role of protector was Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the most senior adult nobleman of the royal blood. Gloucester was away in the north of England, overseeing military efforts against the Scots. As soon as he had heard of Edward's death, he had come to York for a funeral ceremony at which he wept for the loss of his brother. But grief didn't distract him from politics. Gloucester found time during his mourning to write to the council, stating his claim to be protector, for which Lord Hastings lobbied hard on his behalf in London. Hastings was motivated by two very obvious factors. He was naturally wary of Thomas Gray, Marquess of Dorset, and the Woodvilles, who bore him extreme ill will, and with whom he was so uneasily reconciled. Hastings had lost his post as Chamberlain of the royal household on Edward's death. He may well have feared that under a Woodville-led government he would also be deprived of his captaincy of Calais. But more than this, Hastings was motivated by loyalty. No man, save perhaps Gloucester, had been closer or more faithful to Edward IV, and it was therefore a matter of honour that Hastings should defend his late master's wishes. Yet the will of a dead king and the protests of his friends counted for nothing. Hastings was voted down by those councillors who favoured the Queen's family, and it was decided instead that there would be no protectorate. Edward V would begin his reign immediately. He would be crowned on May the 4th, and would rule as an adult king, with a council convened to advise and assist him. Gloucester would have a seat on this council, but he wouldn't have preeminence. It was a victory for the Woodvilles, and Mancini claims that Dorset gloated, we are so important that even without the king's uncle, that is Gloucester, we can make and enforce these decisions. On May the 14th, letters were sent to Ludlow, summoning Rivers and Edward V to London, to arrive on May the 1st, accompanied by a modest force of no more than two thousand men. In the meantime, the old king was to be buried. The obsequies of Edward IV were formidable. On the day of his death, the king's broad, bare-chested body had been placed on display for twelve hours, to be viewed by all the lords, bishops, and aldermen present at Westminster. Subsequently, Edward lay in state for eight days, before being drawn, black-clad, behind horses for burial at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, on April the 20th. A grand and solemn service was held, and masses were sung for the dead man's soul. Finally, when the king's body was placed in the ground, his chief officers of state broke their ceremonial staffs and threw them on top of the coffin, signifying the end of the old reign. Immediately after they had done this, the royal heralds gave a great cry of La Roi est vive, the king is alive, and attention returned to Edward V.
Rivers and the young king set out from Ludlow for London in the last full week of April. Rather than taking the most direct route, they took a detour through the Midlands. Gloucester, returning from the north for the coronation, had been in communication with Rivers and had persuaded him to join forces, the better to make a triumphant entry into London. On Tuesday, April the 29th, the two parties neared each other in Northamptonshire. Gloucester had been met by Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, and the two of them lodged that evening in the town of Northampton. Rivers, Edward V, and the Queen's son, Sir Richard Grey, were a couple of miles ride away, their men having fanned out to spend the night at the villages and hamlets dotting the countryside, which included the old Woodville seat of Grafton Regis. It had been arranged that Gloucester and Buckingham were to present themselves to their new king on the following day, and in preparation for this important family occasion, Rivers and Richard Grey rode over to Gloucester's Inn on the night of April the 29th to share what turned out to be a convivial meal. They were received with an especially cheerful and joyous countenance, and sitting at supper at the Duke's table passed the whole time in very pleasant conversation. Talk may have involved the Scottish campaign, on which Rivers and his brother, Sir Edward Woodville, had both briefly served under Gloucester's command, and there may have been some discussion of the property deals that ceaselessly occupied the minds of English magnates. Only a month previously, Rivers had asked Gloucester to arbitrate a land dispute for him, an act that implied a significant degree of trust and kinship. Whether on these or other matters, the four great men talked late into the night, before retiring to bed, agreeing to rise early in the morning. They rose with the light. The presentation to the new king was to take place in Stony Stratford, a ride of eighteen miles south along Watling Street, the old Roman road that cut a path diagonally across the middle of England. Walking at a gentle pace on horseback, it would have taken three hours or so to cover the ground. But the journey was never completed. The magnates were riding together, accompanied by a large body of Gloucester's soldiers, when the two dukes suddenly drew up, told Rivers and Grey that they were under arrest, and commanded them to be led as prisoners to the north of England. Then Gloucester, Buckingham, and their armed men kicked their horses and set out at a gallop for the king. They commanded sentries to ride out along the road and prevent the news of their coup from spreading, and the tactic appears to have worked. They reached the startled Edward V in quick time, arrested his chamberlain, Sir Thomas Vaughan, dismissed almost all of the royal attendants with threats to kill anyone who disobeyed, then bent on their knees before their new sovereign, caps in hands, and declared that they had come to safeguard the king's rule and protect him from the scheming impudence of the Woodvilles. Edward V was only twelve years old, but he quickly saw through his uncle Gloucester's fine words. According to Mancini, the youth replied, saying that he merely had those ministers whom his father had given him. He had seen nothing evil in them, and wished to keep them unless otherwise proved. As for the government of the kingdom, he had complete confidence in the peers of the realm and the queen. 
At the mention of Elizabeth Woodville's name, Buckingham snapped back that it was not the business of women but of men to govern kingdoms, and so if the king cherished any confidence in her, he had better relinquish it. At this point, Edward realized that the dukes were demanding rather than supplicating. He was as much at their mercy as the men they had arrested, the victim of an unforecast and bewilderingly swift coup. Helpless, Edward went along with them. His last day of real freedom had come abruptly to an end. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, trotted Edward V into London on Sunday, May the 4th. The king, dressed in blue velvet, and his uncle clad head to toe in black. They were met by the mayor, alderman, and a delegation of five hundred citizens wearing robes of violet. It had escaped none of these well-apparelled gentlemen that May the 4th was a date that had been scheduled for the king's coronation. This, Gloucester now announced, would be postponed for seven weeks, to take place instead on Sunday, June the 22nd, immediately followed by the opening of Parliament on Tuesday, June the 24th. This would allow for the coronation and all that pertained to the solemnity to be more splendidly performed. In the meantime, on May the 8th, Gloucester secured from the council the right to act as protector of the kingdom, an office it struck contemporaries that echoed the office wielded by another Duke of Gloucester, Henry VI's uncle Humphrey. But whereas old Humphrey had been frustrated throughout his career by the careful impositions laid upon him by his peers, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, now appeared to wield the power to order and forbid in every matter, just like another king. The Woodvilles had been cut out with extraordinary rapidity. Rivers and Sir Richard Grey were locked up in the Earl of Warwick's former castle at Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire, a huge square fortress that had been one of Gloucester's chief residences when he had been sent to keep order in the north during his brother's reign. The horrified queen, meanwhile, had fled on May the 1st for sanctuary to Westminster, in like condition, noted one chronicler, as she had done before the field of Barnet. She took with her her daughters, her nine-year-old son, Prince Richard, Duke of York, and her eldest son, Thomas Grey, Marquis of Dorset. They would soon be joined there by Lionel Woodville, another of the Queen's siblings. Sir John Woodville, who was the Queen's youngest brother, was at sea with a fleet detailed to defend the English coasts against French piracy. When he heard about the moves against his family, he fled English waters and landed in Brittany. On May the 9th, the day after Richard's appointment as protector, the young king was sent to the Tower of London, supposedly for his own security, although security was scarcely what previous royal inhabitants had found there. Richard, meanwhile, moved into Crosby Place on Bishopsgate, one of the most stunning and modern mansions in the whole of the city, a luxurious stone. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.